Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Rico. Our hope is that today's message adds life and power to your journey as you grow. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited. I don't know, guys. I just, I, I really, I really, not just as a pastor, but as a person who's been touched by the ministry of this church, I want, I want you all to know, if you are not experiencing, if you are not experiencing a deep and a visceral uh, encounter with Christ, I want you to understand, if you're not experiencing that here, we, we urge you, get involved. We urge you. I should just shut up and get into the word because I, y'all got me feeling all types of ways this morning because I really want y'all to know. I really want y'all to know that what, what, what we just experienced, what we just witnessed is not something that you see every day. You don't see it. You hear about it in, in articles. You, you see it in stories. You see it in documentaries. But I want you to understand that, 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 that there is a power that God wants to do in you and a power that God wants to do through you, but the power he wants to do through you often feels like he's doing it through your weakest areas. Your weakest areas. So I just want to encourage someone today. Make sure y'all give uh, our brother Jeremiah a hug on your way out of church when we do close. For now, we're going to open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to be looking in 10 verses, verses 36 through 46 today. And this is going to be the second episode of our series called I'm Fine. Our second episode of the series called I'm Fine. Last week, Pastor Manny Ortega was graced us with his presence. He's a, a, a member of the Relove family, and we are grateful for him. But he really took us through his own personal journey with understanding and battling his fight with suicidality and suicidal ideations through the story of Elijah and 2 Kings. Today, we're going to be continuing that, but what I want to do is I want to actually take a look at some of the areas of Christian culture that have been counterproductive, that have been destructive to our mental health journeys. I'm going to say that again. Today, we're going to take a look at some of the areas of Christian culture that have been destructive to our mental health journeys as Christians. Matthew 26, verse 36 to 46 says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40 says, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? 
Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So I had an apartment in Michigan. I had an apartment in Michigan, and I loved the apartment. I hated the bathroom. (laughs) I hated the bathroom because it was an older place. We have a lot of those in Michigan. It was an older apartment. It was actually an apartment built out of a home. So there were two stories. There was a family that lived upstairs, and then I had the middle, then there was a basement that was rented out, as well as some Michigan stuff. Y'all know about those basements. Don't worry about it. Don't don't worry about what I'm talking about. Uh, So... My problem was that the bathtub, I'm already a big guy, all right, so I got to, you know, I got to make sure that I got the little wide thing with the shower curtain, otherwise it sticks to my thigh all day. I'm trying to shower. I'm just trying to be real with you guys, okay? And so my other issue with the bathtub, though, besides it just being a little narrow, was the fact that you guys know that little thing that you pull? When you turn the shower on, you pull that little thing to make the water go from the bottom to the top. Y'all know this is how you know. This is how you know the way I'm describing it, that I have no idea how to fix anything, right? This is, this is the beginning of my frustration. So there's that little noddle that you pull, and you lift it up. I think it's called a diverter. I'm, I'm lying. I looked it up last night on Google. It's called a diverter. <laughs> it's, called, it's called a diverter. So it's a little diverter knob. You lift it up, and it makes the water stop coming out from the faucet at the bottom, and it makes it come out to the top. Well, when I lift that up, nothing would happen. And I struggled with this for like my first three weeks in the apartment. I finally called the landlord and brought him over and asked him to take a look at this. He was also the maintenance guy, super nice guy. But this was my issue is he went in there and he was like, oh no, it works. All you have to do is lift it up. You got to put your finger in the bottom and lift up the top at the same time. And I scratched my head. I said, it don't really seem like that's the way it's supposed to go though. It, it seems like it was designed just to, I'm not going to argue with you nothing. I don't know nothing about a diverter, calibrator, uh, uh, so-and-so situation. Uh, but he, he, he continued to insist. He was like, no, if you just put your finger under and lift, he said, you got, he said here, try it. And I'm already frustrated because I'm like, look, dude, just, just fix my, just fix the bathtub. But I'm going to go ahead and entertain him. So I'm over there reaching and leaning. It's hot. We're sweating a little bathtub together. Okay. And I'm lifting, I'm, I'm trying to lift this thing. And he tells me, he said, he said, give it a little effort. And I'm like, listen, man, I just stepped away and I said, give it a little effort. In my mind, I'm like, okay, let me just stay cool with him because I've only been here three weeks. You know, I'm, I ain't, I'm not trying to get, fight over no deposit. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and let it be. And it was one of those situations where, you know, you don't want to argue. And so you're just like, okay, all right, that makes sense. All right, cool, bye. Like, I just wanted him gone at that point. Like, it was, I, I could see that for reasons of his convenience, he did not want to admit that there was a problem. For reasons of his convenience, he did not want to admit that there was a problem. He was not the manufacturer of the faucet, but he was the endorser of the faucet. He was the person who was responsible for fixing the faucet. For reasons of his convenience, he did not want to admit that there was a problem. And so it is with the church and mental health. What do we want to do? We want to say, there is no problem. No, you just should have prayed it away. No, you're just disconnected. Are you in your word? I don't know. You haven't been coming to church. Are you on the prayer line? These are the questions we want to ask people before we truly acknowledge that mental health is a real and a deep-seated issue that exists in and among our people. 
for reasons of our convenience, we don't want to admit that there is a problem. The church has created a culture that is not only counterproductive, but it is destructive to the mental health journeys of its people. And I'm grateful that we live in a day and age where there's a lot more narrative, a lot more conversation around it. But these are still the words I hear every Saturday morning when I come to church. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. These are still the words you are hearing when you pay attention. When you ask somebody how they're doing, they're telling you, I'm fine. But the truth is, nah, not really. We're not really fine. We are living in an age where anxiety and depression have tripled since 2019, simply since COVID. We are living in a day and age where information is flooding us. It's all around us, but we are hungry for the truth. We are living in a day and age when our decisions, our movement, our pivot points, and our interactions are, are, are founded in fear and not in the truth. And what I'm going to do before I jump further into this word is I want to make one disclaimer. I am not a mental health professional. Okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about what the Bible has to say, and we're going to talk about the spirituality and the spiritual issues surrounding mental health. But what I'm not going to do is make diagnoses. But I do want you to know something. I'm a little smarter now than when I left to Michigan the first time. I want you all to understand that. I'm not a mental health professional, but I do want you to understand that I am aware. I am read. I have studied. And if you weren't aware, I went to Michigan to pursue a seminary degree, but also have been studying a master of social work. And I have been blessed by the conversations and, and, and the areas of education that I have been given the opportunity and afforded the opportunity to learn from. So I don't want to stand before you today as a professional in mental health, but I do want to stand before you today as somebody who is aware. And I just want you to ask yourself, are you aware what does awareness look like? And we're going to dive into that a little more. See, what happens, let's take anxiety, for example. We're talking about the culture of Christianity in the church. What, what, what happens when, when we talk about anxiety? We like to pull up the verse Philippians 4, 6 through 7, right? And we have that to put on the screen. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. If you have not seen it, which I'm pretty sure you have, this is what it looks like. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we're like, ooh, the Bible says the word anxious. Here's a verse I could throw at somebody who has anxiety. This is what we do. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what do Christians say? We say you don't have peace because you have not prayed. I know you've heard it. And if you haven't said it, you've communicated it. Or you've had it communicated to you. You don't have peace because you have not prayed. So we put the ownership and the onus of mental health on the person. Look at 1 Peter 5 verse 7. It's another verse about anxiety. What does 1 Peter 5 verse 7 say? It says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you, right? And so what do Christians say? Christians say, go ahead and cast them. Cast all your cares. No, the yoke is light. Go cast them. Come on, you're not casting hard enough. Just cast more. Cast better. But we don't really actually unpack how to do that. We don't really ever actually talk about what that means. We just say, give it a little effort. Yeah. Like that broken faucet. Just give it a little effort. Yeah. 
The reason you're struggling is because of your inadequacy. Think about it. Think about, think about the way our, we're not just counterproductive, but destroying people's foundation in mental health. Suggesting that mental health is fully and completely controlled by a person's spiritual discipline, it undermines and minimizes their human experience. I want you to understand that it disregards and degrades their pain, and I want you to understand that it misappropriates and abuses Scripture. Y'all lucky I wrote it down this time. Suggesting that mental health is fully and completely controlled by a person's spiritual discipline undermines and minimizes their human experience. It diminishes and invalidates their pain, and it misappropriates and abuses the true teachings of Scripture. So what do we do? What do we do? We learn that church is not a place where I can be open and honest. Because people don't want to see my person, they want to see their perceived perspective of my spirituality. We, we cast all of our anxieties away by leaving them at the door, is what we do. We carry backpacks, all of us, with emotions that are heavy based upon our experiences, our traumas. And what do we do? We don't cast them away in the correct way. We listen to the sermon that tells you, hey, you need to just leave it all at the door. I, I, I want to pause real quick because I don't want to take ownership of this thought. If you have not, I want to invite you to go to the Relove YouTube channel or go to podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and I want you to listen to episode four of the We Talk in Spaces podcast, okay? In that podcast, I had the opportunity to sit down and interview one of our very own members, Natalie Blanco, who is Keith's wife. She's been a member of our church for over 10 years, and she openly, transparently, and courageously discussed her current and ongoing struggle with depression, anxiety, and suicidality in a way that we are not often privileged enough to see. The transparency and vulnerability that we saw in Jeremiah this morning, these are things that we don't often get to see. I want y'all to recognize how up at the forefront of what's happening at ReLove, there is vulnerability and transparency. Natalie is the person that said that. She said, hey, we are taught as Christians that we're going to put our emotions in a bag, our experiences in a bag, put them on our backpack, and we're expected just to take that backpack off and we leave it at the door. So what do we do? We come to church. We come into the, out of the, out of walking through the parking lot, getting out of our car. We get to the threshold of the sanctuary door. We all take our bags off, nice and neat, just like the elementary school, and we leave them lined up out there. And inside those bags, what do you have? You have your depression. You have your anxiety. You have your hopelessness. You have your fear. You have your constant worries. You have your trauma from your childhood. You have the things that you've experienced. You have the, the questions that you don't have answers to, right? You have your abuse, your addiction. All of these things are in that bag. We leave them out there and we say, not only are we not going to bring them in the sanctuary and share them with other people, but we're going to keep that bag closed to God as well. We're just going to come to church and look like we're growing, look like we're, we're learning, and look like we're healing, but we truly are never experiencing any real visceral internal change because we're leaving our problems at the door. Because church has been, a, has been a place that taught you that you are not safe to be here with your hurt. This is not a safe place to bring your pain. This is what we have, this is the culture we've created. 
If you weren't away, if you don't know, now you know. I'm pretty sure everyone has experienced this. I need y'all to get this, is that this is what church is like for most people. Then what do we do? We walk out of the sanctuary doors and we pick that bag back up and we carry those things Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So the only real peace we experience is in a 90-minute time we get to sing some songs together and listen to the word. And we carry those things with us. This is the culture we've created. Jesus, in Matthew 26, verse 36, he is a few minutes away from being captured. He is hours away from his death. He is hurt. He is abandoned. He is mentally and emotionally exhausted. He is alone. He is left by his disciples. And he is moments away from being betrayed. Jesus was not okay. Jesus, the son of God, was not okay. How is it that we always are? There are three crucial conversations that Jesus had in this scripture. I'm going to give you all my three points right from the beginning here. There are three crucial conversations that Jesus had and that we don't have. We see in Matthew chapter 36 that Jesus had a conversation with himself. Jesus had a conversation with his disciples. Jesus had a conversation with God. I want to put these up on the screen, these three conversations, because what I want you to do is you need to do these three things. You need to have a conversation with you. You need to have a conversation with them, whoever them is for you, and you need to have a conversation with God. But there's three lies that stop you from doing this. What are the three lies that stop you from doing this? The lie that stops you from having a conversation with you is, I'm okay. That's the lie that stops you from having a conversation with you. What is the lie that stops you from having a conversation with them, whoever your them is? The lie is, it's not okay to be not okay. And what is the lie that stops you from having a conversation with God? It's, God only loves me when I'm okay. These are the three lies that we are telling ourselves that are preventing us from having the crucial conversations that Jesus, the Son of God, had in the Garden of Gethsemane. That first conversation, the conversation with you. Let's talk about that and its counterpart, the lie that I'm okay. Saying I'm fine when you're not is the result of you accepting the defeat of something you feel you have no control over. It typically happens with a large amount of time that has passed. You are discouraged from your situation not changing. You often accept, hey, this is just the way it is. I'm fine. I've learned to deal with it. I'm, I'm fine. I really am. I'm not dead. I mean, I'm not this. I'm not that. You say all the things you're not to tell yourself that you are fine. And I want to point out that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. So Jesus was praying to God the Father but he was also praying to himself because he himself is God the Son. So while he is praying, he is having a conversation with himself. What conversations are you having with yourself? Imagine trying to grasp the idea that the salvation of all of humanity 
rested on your sacrifice, but all you felt was helplessness. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Jesus had to be honest with himself about his condition, his emotions, and his suffering. And we see that he was honest with himself about that. How do we know that? Look at, look at verse 38. In Matthew 26, verse 38. What does it say in verse 38? It says, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I feel like dying. He had not yet encountered the cross, and Christ felt the weight of death. Because of his emotional circumstances. Stay here and keep watch for me. What does verse 39 say? Verse 39 says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. So we know based upon what Jesus said in his prayers that he was speaking to himself. He was acknowledging, hey, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I am not okay. We know that he did not want to carry through with what he was being asked to do because he asked God to take the cup from him. Sometimes fighting the I'm fine culture starts by telling yourself, I am not okay. And it's okay to be not okay. I want to introduce you to someone that I've been reading the research of. Her name is Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Dr. Carolyn Leaf. She's from Zimbabwe. uh, And she has dedicated her life to uh, seeking understanding about God through research of the brain, okay? She is a communication pathologist and a cognitive neuroscience who also happens to be a Christian, okay? And so awareness is the first and most crucial step of breaking destructive mental and emotional cycles. I'm not here today just to preach to you about the Bible and what the Word says and the Spirit. I want to bring to you some actual liberating information that you can take with you and make tangible differences in your life or at least in your perspectives. Let's talk about awareness. What is awareness? Awareness is thinking that happens in... Let me back up. Thinking, this researcher, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, says that thinking happens in two waves. It says that you have thoughts that begin from inside of you and that you can project outside and communicate. You also are able to receive messages simultaneously. So she said you can do both. We're able to have a two-way street with thinking. Thinking is something that happens inside and goes out and it's something that we receive and come in. She also explains that the human brain, unlike other brains in the animal kingdom, are very, very peculiar because they have the rare ability to simultaneously see two thoughts and compare one to the other for truth. So what we do when we're listening and receiving information as I'm talking to you, what's happening is you're hearing the information come to you, you're putting that side by side to what you already know and believe, and you're determining whether or not that's true. What's crazy about her research is that she found that you are actually capable of thinking about doing that every 10 seconds. Let me, let, me, let me break that down. So what we're saying is that every 10 seconds, your brain is hardwired with the ability to think about what you're thinking about. This is awareness. Every 10 seconds, you have the capability as a human to think about your thoughts. But when we don't tap into that ability, we live our lives unaware of what we're actually thinking. And so we fall into these cyclical patterns of thinking that actually don't serve us in our journey. Why is this important? This is important. Socrates once said that the unexamined life is one not worth living. 
The unexamined life is one not worth living. Awareness is complete and utter self-regulation. Standing back and asking myself, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? How would I like to respond to this feeling? That's what you're doing when you're demonstrating awareness. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? How do I want to respond? You are putting yourself in the driver's seat of your life experience by being aware of your thinking. We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You cannot renew what you are unaware of. You will always wrongly trick yourself into thinking, I'm fine, when you're not. Here's another one for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought. I don't know if you realize, but that's words that Christians have often used to diminish a person's mental health journey. Hey, take captive of your thoughts. Just take captive. Hey, you have the power. You have the control. Take captive of your thoughts. But what I want you to understand is we Christians are real good at saying the word, but not actually doing the word. We love to say we're taking captive of our thoughts, but we haven't stopped and thought about what we thought about in years, let alone every 10 seconds. What this researcher is suggesting is that taking captive of your thought actually means you taking captive of your thought, being aware of what you're thinking. If you're capable every 10 seconds to ask myself, what am I thinking? Then you should ask yourself, what are you thinking? And think about what you're thinking about. This is awareness. This is the true biblical and scientific description of taking captive of your thoughts. The moment you are aware of a negative thought, that thought weakens. That thought, that thought changes, and anything that can be weakened can be overcome. We need to understand that the science shows that the physical, the, the measurable brain wave of your thinking actually changes when you start thinking about what you're thinking about. And if it is capable of being weakened, it is capable of being changed. Fight the I'm fine culture with the conversation with you. What are your thoughts? What are you thinking about? Is it adding to your journey or is it taking away from your journey? What is that second conversation? That second conversation is a conversation with them. Second conversation is a conversation with them. We see Christ go into the Garden of Gethsemane with 12 disciples. Well, it's actually 11 because Judas is off pulling the Roman soldiers together to get Jesus. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with 11 people, but what does he do? He says, hey, wait here and pray. Then he pulls three people. Matthew, or he pulls Peter, James, and John and says, come with me a little further. The book of Luke says that it's about a stone's throw away. So he came in with 11, asked them to pray, and then selected three and asked them to pray as he entered deeper into the garden. Who are your three? Who are your three people? Who are your close people? You may not have 12 people that you just want to share everything with, but do you have three? Do you have three that you're willing to, to share your deepest, darkest secrets with? Three that you will allow and submit yourself to pray with you? We've created a culture in Christian communities that have taught us to believe that it's not okay to be okay, that we don't actually need our three. And the silent prayer request is an example of that. The silent prayer request was invented by the Christian. Let's think about this. Silent. 
Any prayer requests? Silent. I'm not going to speak it. I'm not going to think it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to share it. I'm just silent. What does that actually mean? That actually means mm, too deep for me to say to these people. That means I don't trust these people to know what I really need to pray about. That means uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel safe here. This is what that means. This is the culture we've created in church. Dr. Leaf, her research shows that what you fear is what you attract. In other words, what you think about is what you bring about. She also identified that of all the books written by Christian authors that are currently published, that there are more on fear, condemnation, and guilt than anything else. Fear, condemnation, and guilt are the number one topic of Christian authorship because Christians don't know what to do with fear, condemnation, and guilt. We don't actually understand how to do what the Bible tells us to do in captive, taking captive of our thoughts. We don't know how to actually live in community in a way that allows us to have power over these things. Vulnerability comes from the Latin word vulnerare, which is to wound. And I want you guys to think about this. Did you know that the word vulnerability itself is rooted in the same definition as to wound? So being vulnerable is actually means our capacity to hurt. When we ask you to be vulnerable with each other, we ask you to be vulnerable. What we're asking you to do is actually hurt together. We're asking you to hurt in front of people. We're asking you to hold and exist in the atmosphere of each other's pain. That is a very intimate, a very deep, a very, a very, a very vulnerable thing to do. But let me tell you what vulnerability is not. It's important that we understand what vulnerability is and what it is not. Because I want you to understand that Jesus selected, once again, he selected certain people with whom he would be vulnerable. Vulnerability is not just about sharing painful feelings. It's, it's about taking risks to do or say something for the greater good of yourself or your relationships and the people around you. It's being uncomfortable with the risk, but taking the risk anyway. It means to do so even when you don't know for sure how you will be received or how the situation will turn out. Vulnerability does not mean oversharing. Hear me. Or that you need to be vulnerable with everyone all the time. It does not mean throwing caution to the wind. That is not what vulnerability is. In fact, I want to submit to you that vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability at all. What do I mean by this? What does that mean? Vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability at all. I want to bring your attention here to this table. What do we have here? We have giant Jenga, right? That's what it looks like to me. So I want to suggest that this right here, these back blocks, this is me, this is you. Me, you. We're having a relationship. We are talking. We are communicating, right? There's a difference between a boundary and a barrier. They're not the same thing. I'm suggesting that you demonstrate vulnerability within the confines of boundaries, but not barriers. Because this is what a barrier does. A barrier stacks like this and places this between me and you. That's a barrier. A barrier makes it so 
no one comes in. A barrier keeps you safe. It keeps you untouched. A barrier makes it so that you don't have to take any risks. A barrier makes it so you don't have to grow. A barrier does not challenge you. These are barriers. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not telling you that vulnerability vulnerability requires barriers. I'm telling you that vulnerability requires boundaries. Now, what's different about a boundary and a barrier? Now we have me and you. And a boundary says you can come this far. That's what a boundary says. I can still see you. I can still hear you. I can still interact with you. We can still be in relationship, but here's how far I'm going to let you in, right here. And this boundary may look different for this person. Let's say you want to talk to this person now. You may want these type of boundaries, okay? You can come this close with this conversation, but this close with this conversation. See, see... Boundaries, they change with your relationships. Boundaries also should not stay the same. If you are true, if boundaries are serving the purpose they're supposed to serve, boundaries are supposed to create pathways for people to connect with you, not barriers to keep people away from you. But we in church want to come to church with barriers. We don't want to let our guards down. We don't want to open our hearts. We don't want to take any risks. I'd rather sit here in the coffin of my security and die alone and die sad and watch other people die alone and die sad because we refuse to take down the barriers. But I'm telling you to create boundaries. I'm telling you to be selective and intentional with how and who you let in. Jesus took 12 and brought three. The difference between boundaries and barriers will break the parts of our culture that are killing us Christians. The difference between boundaries and barriers will break the parts of our culture that are killing Christians. Boundaries are necessary for safe relationships and growing relationships. Boundaries are not barriers. Barriers keep people out. Boundaries keep people in in a way that's safe and comfortable for you and in a way that's intentional for them. Barriers make your heart inaccessible, leaving it untouched, unalive, and cold, whereas boundaries create pathways to your heart that protect you from those who intend to harm you and connect you to those who care enough to honor them. Barriers keep people away. Boundaries keep people where you are comfortable. Boundaries tell people how to treat you. Barriers create a false sense of security that serves more as a prison than a pathway to relationship. Boundaries help us honor our limits while creating opportunities to maintain and cultivate relationships. You have to experience vulnerability within boundaries, but not within barriers. And finally, the last conversation is the conversation with God. And I'm going to be closing here. The conversation with God. Listen, the lie that stops you from having the conversation with God is simply, God only loves me when I'm okay. This is the lie that stops us from having a conversation with God. I'm not talking about just any type of conversation. I'm not talking about come Lord Jesus, be our guest and let this. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the type of conversation we see Jesus Christ have in the Garden of Gethsemane with God. That's the type of conversation I'm talking about. I'm talking about pouring out. Verse 39 says that he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Are we falling with our face to the ground and praying? Are we prostrate? 
Now, I'm not telling you to have this super highly spiritual experience when you pray. No, I'm just telling you to talk. I'm telling you to talk in your desperateness. I'm telling you to talk in your desperation. I'm telling you to talk in your despair. This is what I'm telling you to do. Fall to your face, whatever that looks like for you. Verse 42, it says that he went away a second time and then prayed. And then verse 44, it says once more he went and prayed. He's continuing to pray. But this is not, this is not, listen, listen. This is, Luke twenty two forty four says that Jesus prayed until sweat became like blood. This is not a talking kind of uh, fold my hands and close my eyes. No, this is a pouring out. This is the squeezing of a, of a, of a sponge until there's nothing left. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is, this is, a, this is a, 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 a deep intensity in communication with God. When you are at your last wit, when you are hurting the most, this is where you pour out to God. And don't use prayer words either. Use pour out words. Use the words you have when you're in an argument with your spouse. Use the words you have when you're winning that argument in the shower. Because you know you don't be winning that argument in person. <laughs> you already know. You need to have the words that you have when you're sitting next to a graveside and no one else is there. And you're mourning the loss of that loved one. Those are the words that you should cry out to God with. These are pouring out words. If we truly only believe that God loves us when I'm okay, then we cannot believe that God ever loves us. The Bible reveals that God is a person who wants to connect with you on the level of your pain and your stress and your anxiety. And we see this in 1 Peter 5, verse 7. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It doesn't say cast all your anxiety on him because he can fix it. It doesn't say cast all your cares on him because he's strong. It says because he cares. But we... When I submit to you, we don't truly believe he cares. This is a lie. We don't truly believe that he cares. If we did, I truly believe that we would be spending more time pouring out in prayer. If we really believe that God can love me in my ugly. If you truly believe that you were not disqualified by your addictions by the parts of your character that are unsound. If you truly believed that, we would be truly having conversations with God more than we do now. And I know this is true because sometimes I believe that the lack of our depth and connection with one another is actually reflective of our understanding of God's desire for us. I'll say that again. The lack of our depth and connection with one another is an indicator of our perception of God's desire for us. We don't want to connect with people because we don't believe we're desirable. I don't believe that person wants me to connect with them with my ugly. And if you can't believe that about the person next to you, how are you going to believe that about a God? At the end of the day, there's a lie we're telling ourselves that is stopping us from connecting with God in the times when we need it the most, when we truly are creating that plan for suicide, when we truly are our lowest points, when we're looking to run away, we're looking to escape. Jesus was looking to escape. Father, take this cup from me. There's nothing wrong with the escape or the wanting to escape. But I want to help you all defend against the parts of our carnal hearts that tell us the lies that keep us from having these crucial conversations 
God loves you just how you are. In fact, God doesn't just accept you in your ugly. He loves your ugly. I know this because when he died and your sin was diminished and taken away at the cross, you were put, you put on the righteousness of Christ. So now you exist within the righteousness of Christ himself. How can Christ himself not be loved by his own father? The deepest, ugliest, scarred, most marred, muddy parts of your soul that you refuse to expose are the very ones God is looking to get into. But these are the lies that we're telling ourselves that prevent us from connecting with God. God deeply and intimately loves every part of your character, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There is no struggle you have that he hasn't seen. You're not that creative. Your life isn't that extraordinary. God has seen it all. He's received it all. And he wants to take it all. Do not suffer alone, family. In the silence and solitude, have the conversations. Talk to yourself. Talk to them. Talk to God in those moments of your lowest points. Can you give yourself permission to actively and deliberately be aware of your feelings? Can you live with the courage to be vulnerable and within the safety of boundaries begin developing relationships? Will you accept a love and an embrace that you could never earn but deserve so deeply? Please do this. Because your life may depend on it. And if we come to church thinking this way, we will help somebody else whose life also depends on it. God, we just want to thank you in this time of reflection. We're challenged, God, by the word. We're challenged by seeing the son of man struggle in the garden. If he's God, how are we ever expected to do it? But God, we claim in the name of Jesus today through the victory that he had in Gethsemane, through the victory that he had on the cross and the victory he had at the grave, Father, we are claiming power over the lies that our Christian church culture has created that has brought people to their death. Father, let relove be a place where vulnerability takes place within boundaries. Father, let relove be a place where true healing can be witnessed, where true healing can be experienced, Father. Let each individual under the sound of my voice, whether they're online or even here in this room, God, not only be blessed by this information, Father, but be transformed by the renewing of their mind through you. We're thankful, God, that we can claim these promises in Jesus' name. Amen.